0: Welcome to the National Committee on U.S.-China Relations Events Podcast, where we bring you the audio from our public programs, featuring in-depth analysis of topics on China from scholars, journalists, authors, and policymakers. For more interviews, videos, and links to events like this one, visit us at www.ncuscr.org.
1: Uh, good morning to those of you in Asia, especially to our two speakers. You've gotten up very early in your continuing service to the National Committee on U.S. China Relations. Uh, I'm Steve Orleans. I'm president of the National Committee on U.S. China Relations, and I want to welcome you to a somewhat new program. What we have normally done is we have taken the Chinese participants from our track to economic dialogue when they have come to the United States in January and done a public program on the outlook for China's economy in the coming year. We do that in January. In July, normally, the US group, this is obviously all pre-COVID, goes to China and we have uh, the second part of our Track 2 Dialogue in China. But we have not historically had a public program associated with that. This year, though it's before our Track 2 Dialogue, which will occur in three weeks, we thought it was important to um, have a look at what's going to be going on, what is going on, and what we think is going to be going on in China's economy. I am told that we didn't schedule this uh, this public program um, in conjunction with all of the economic data that has come out in the last few days. um, From China Uh, its GDP numbers in the US time came out this morning Uh, its export numbers came out around three days ago, I think there were lots of surprises in that, for those of us who watch China's economy. So we've got two of the outstanding economists on China with us today to kind of shed uh, light on all of this data on what's going on, on the macroeconomic outlook um, for China's economy, what we should be expecting, not only in the coming year, but in the coming years. Both are participants, as I said, in our track 2 dialogue. Liang Hong is currently director of the Institute of Innovation and Industry Studies. Um, She previously was head of research at China International Capital Corporation, what we refer to as CICC. She is a PhD in economics from Georgetown University. Xu Gao is currently the chief economist of Bank of China International. Um, leading the research institute and the sales and trading department. His PhD in economics is from Beidan, from Peking University. So I will start with each giving, I will start by asking each to give their overview of what's going on in the Chinese economy. I'll then ask some questions and then the audience, which is some very esteemed, Folks who focus on China's economy can ask questions by clicking on the Q and A icon at the bottom of their screen and uh, typing in a question, and I will ask that question in time. But let me turn it over to Liang Hong. We thank you so much not only for participating in the Track Two Dialogue for being with us early this summer morning.
0: Thank you, thank you, Steve, for having me. Um, I'll. I will start with uh, a quick summary of how we see the data that was just released. Um, China's Q2 GDP growth came in at 7.9%. That is below consensus. Uh, The consensus forecast before the data release was expecting 8.1 to 8.5% growth. And this is also in comparison to the 18.3% achieved in Q1. Of course, Q1, that number was particularly high due to the very low base in 2020. Um, I think the broad reading of uh, the data release was uh, the growth momentum is softening and the growth recovery remains uneven. Uh, let me dive into uh, the composition of the growth uh, briefly. Uh, exports remains to be the bright spot, spot for China's growth. Uh, so, if we look at the past seven, eight months, um, ex- China's export performance continued to surprise on upside, uh, despite many. Economists have predicted it will soften. Uh, I think that reflects to reflects the um, very strong recovery uh, in the U.S. economy and and in some other parts of the world. If we just look at the June data, the most late, latest monthly data, um, the exports to Asian countries and to India uh, have surged to thirty to forty percent. Uh, so we're from the export side, we could see a broadening recovery of the global economy. Um, So the strong exports data also is very much consistent with very strong industrial activity data. Uh, So China's industrial activity numbers have been quite resilient and have been stronger than expected. So the June uh, industrial production number um, the growth came in at 8.3%. Um, if people remember, before COVID, uh, China's industrial production growth number have settled around 4 to 5%, even 6% is a strong number. Um, so to be running at uh, not too low base already, at 8%, that shows um, the strength um, is p- pretty much um, probably stronger than pre-COVID level. So if we look at, the export part of the economy, the industrial part of the economy, it is uh, um, running uh, in our view, close to maybe a bit overheating even. Uh, and that's also consistent with the very, very strong PPI uh, running at above 8%. But at the same time, domestic demand have been uh, softening for a couple more months. Uh, if we look at domestic investment, Uh, that's uh, within the composition of domestic investment, um, property, real estate investment have been very strong until May-ish and and due to policy uh, tightening, um, the demand and and, uh, real estate construction uh, on the margin, the growth rate start to soften. And the one particular soft point in investment is infrastructure investment. Uh, and that's again reflect uh, the government policy has been much more uh, prudent or hawkish uh, this year uh, so if we look at the may and june infrastructure investment on uh, a year-on-year base both of them were negative uh, if we use a two-year period comparison um, those were merely at three four percentage point um, but within domestic, Uh, investment demand. Manufacturer capex has been the bright spot. Uh, It continues to uh, actually gain momentum on the margin. Uh, We think that reflects the very strong uh, performance in exports and also uh, the continued um, demand for import substitution in uh, electronic equipments, uh, automation, uh, some of the um, manufacturing moving up the value chain part of the uh, demand. Um, I think uh, the last part that uh, many uh, financial media and economists have caught up is uh, consumption demand, consumer demand remains to be the weak link in this recovery. Um, So on a two year per annum basis, uh, China's retail sales barely recovered to uh, 4%. Uh, year on year, that kind of growth rate. And we think that uh, some of the in-person consumption services remains fairly weak. So if we look at the 4% retail sales, that's roughly a 5% growth for uh, goose consumption, uh, but only uh, 1% for, um, restaurant dining type of service consumption. Um, So this is, um, I think a lot of economists has commented on this. Uh, We think that reflects um, the policies the policy support to COVID came in very different form between China and the US. In the US, uh, a lot of the support uh, came in with direct um, check or or transfer payments to household sector. But in China, the policy choice has been to uh, support uh, companies and support uh, job creation rather than giving any direct uh, payments to household sector. uh, we think if we look at it broadly speaking, um, consumption is recovering, household income is recovering. However, the pace of uh, the recovery uh, fell short compared with the industrial sector, compared with the export sector. Um, so this set of data, uh, even before the release, has generated quite a lot of discussions about uh, whether there's a need for policy adjustment, policy fine-tuning. Um, and we surprisingly, uh, Friday last week, got a reserve requirement cut. Uh, that was a surprise to the market uh, because policymakers previously uh, was warning about inflation uh, risks uh, most of the time. Um, So when the RR was delivered, there was debate about either was that reflecting a much weaker economy or was that a reflection of uh, some uh, realization policy may be too tight. Uh, uh, I think probably uh, the the latter camp uh, is more uh, accurate, Uh, given um, the uh, Chinese policymakers came into the year uh, for seeing very strong exports, and they would like to use the opportunity to address some of the uh, structural Uh, long-term challenges, uh, including leverage. So they deliberately uh, run uh, a tighter policy mix. Um, So if in the US, uh, investors are talking about exit of the Fed uh, or exit of the fiscal policy sometime uh, down the road. Uh, If we look at it in China's case, monetary policy has exited its stimulus stance uh, around November uh, last year. Um, for the first five months, six months, when we got the data, it suggests the fiscal side has run into a significant uh, tightening. Uh, Dr. Xu Gao will uh, share with you more details how that number looks. Uh, But I think at this juncture, when uh, the latest data continue to show sequential momentum of the growth, probably the domestic side is still significantly below its potential. And China's CPI inflation is, uh, there's a little inflation pressure. Uh, CPI inflation runs at 1% barely, uh, despite eight to 9% PPI. Um, I think uh, some consensus is emerging uh, policy mix, physical and monetary needs to be fine tuned, uh, particular probably fiscal um, spending um, has been lagging significantly behind the budget. Uh, so if China um, decides to um, be more supportive to growth, there's certainly a lot of room for policy maneuver. Uh, with that, I pass the floor back to uh, Dr. Xu or Steve.
1: Go ahead, Xu Gao. Good morning, Steve,
2: and good morning, Yang Hong. And uh, it is always my pleasure to be a part of this program And uh, uh, it's my pleasure to give my views about Chinese economy uh, on this in this forum. And uh, I agree with Liang Hong and uh, uh, the growth momentum in China has uh, slowed in the recent months. But I think that the, the growth rate is still quite decent. And I would mainly talk about three things uh, about the Chinese economy. Uh, first is the export, and uh, second is the domestic policy orientation, including fiscal and monetary policy and third is the inflation. Uh, uh, first, uh, 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 as Liang Hong said before, that uh, uh, export in China is uh, uh, export of China in the, in the past several months is the uh, is bright spot of the Chinese economy. And I think that is uh, to a large extent, uh, a result of this uh, asymmetric uh, recovery pattern between China and the developed economies. Okay, if you look at the, the, the recovery uh, in the supply side uh, of the world economy, actually China's expo- China's industry production output uh, after seasonal adjusted, is now uh, more than 10% above the pre-COVID level. In the meantime, the industry output in developed economies, including United States and Europe, is still a little, a little bit lower than, it, than the level, than the pre-COVID pre level. So on the supply side, the recovery of Chinese economies is much better than, than the, uh, the developed economies. But if you look at the demand side, if you look at the retail sales, actually the single adjusted retail sales in United States is a more than, is about 20% higher than, than the pre-COVID COVID, uh, level. And uh, in China, the actually the retail sales in China has also recovered after the uh, in the past uh, uh, several quarters. But uh, the level of the retail sales in China in nowadays is just about it's less than ten percent. Is just about five to ten percent higher uh, than the uh, pre COVID pre COVID levels. So the recovery of the demand side in China is slower than, than it was. Uh, in the United States. I think that reflects the different orientation of the policy uh, stimulus uh, of these two countries, of the two kinds of countries as Liang Hong said before. So this this has led to a kind of uh, recirculation, global recirculation, as I said before. Uh, You can see that the the stronger supply and the stronger demand, stronger supply in China and the Stronger demand in the United States in combined has led to a stronger export of China to United States and to other countries. So we expect that the global economy will continue to recover in the coming quarters as the as the uh, in inoculation of this uh, vaccine and uh, I think the developed economy will, will approach, will, will get to the herd immunity status uh, in the coming uh, one or two quarters. And uh, that will lead to strong demand of China's exports. So we expect China export continue to continue to grow strongly in the coming quarters. And uh, that, that is the export side. And if you look at dom- domestic, uh, domestic side, actually the domestic demand in China uh, has grown much slower, uh, has been growing much slower than the export growth. I think that is to a large extent, a prudent policy orientation in China in the in the past several quarters. Uh, because when, the, when you have a strong export demand, and if you use too much policy stimulus within China's economy, that will lead to uh, uh, too much uh, aggregate demand. So in the past several quarters, we see fiscal policies has tightened uh, uh, visibly. Uh, if you look at the, a uh, fiscal deficit in China. Actually, fiscal deficit in China is, uh, according to my calculation, the shrink of the fiscal deficit in China uh, is about in the in the first half of this year is about five percent, five percent of the Chinese GDP. So you can see this is a very strong uh, fiscal tightening. But uh, this this kind of fiscal tightening is to a large extent a result of a strong uh, tax revenue in China. Actually, in this year, the tax revenue grow more than 20% in the first five months of China, uh, in, uh, in the first of five months of this year. And in the meantime, the fiscal, the growth of fiscal expenditure in China is much lower. That result, result that has resulted in a strong, a very, very big fiscal uh, surplus. And compared with a uh, uh, big fiscal deficit in, in the same period last year, so there is a big shrink of the uh, fiscal deficit in China, and uh, also the uh, monetary policies has also uh, so the growth of the total social financing in China in the first half of this year is is much lower than it was in the first half of last year, and I think that is that is a natural policy uh, adjustment according. Uh, because the Chinese growth in, in the first half of this year is much higher than it was in the last year, but in the coming quarters, we expect that although the export growth will continue to be strong, but uh, accord, but, but due to a higher and a higher basis in last year, the year-on-year growth of China's export will come down uh, visibly in the coming months, and uh, as Liang Hong said that the. the the growth momentum in Chinese economy, a uh, growth momentum of Chinese economy, has also slowed uh, in the recent months. So I think the uh, the policy orientation has started to be adjusted. So we see the, there's a trip, uh, required reserve cut in the last week, and we expect that fiscal ex- the growth of fiscal expenditure in China will accelerate in the coming months. So this. Policy, uh, policy-oriented uh, adjustment will boost China's domestic demand and uh, that will that should offset the weakness in the export, uh, the possible export in the coming months. So we expect the Chinese economy to grow uh, stably in the coming quarters and in the coming years. That, that is the, uh, the domestic policies. And the inflation, Actually, China has, has uh, strong inflation pressures on the producer side. So the PPI inflation in China uh, has uh, reached uh, eight to 9% in the in recent two months. But the transmission of the PPI inflation to CPI inflation has largely muted. Uh, so the CPI inflation is just about 1%. But that is a, to a large extent a result of the falling pork price in China pork price account of a very large share of the Chinese inflation in the, in, the, in the last several years. And the pork supply in China has increased a lot in, the, in, in this year. And that has pushed down uh, China's pork price and lower the CPI inflation. Uh, so I think the, that lower inf- inflation has given room for China's central bank to, to relax monetary policies uh, in the coming quarters. So I think uh, in, the, in the coming months, in the coming quarters, we expect that the inflation pressures in China will, will, be, um, uh, will be manageable and uh, uh, the consumer price, uh, consumer price inflation will be, uh, will be low and uh, that uh, will give room for more policy uh, stimulus uh, if necessary uh, in, the, uh, in the coming, coming months. So we expect, basically we expect that the Chinese economy will continue to grow uh, robustly uh, in the coming months. Although the year on year growth rate will, will be lower due to higher base in, last, in, in the second half of last year. But uh, we expect that China will continue to do a good job in, in delivering uh, decent uh, economic growth uh, in the coming quarters and in the coming months. And if you uh, my forecast for the GDP growth in this year uh, will be around 9%, uh, which is slightly higher than the market consensus. And my forecast for the GDP growth in the in next year, in year 2022, I think my forecast is about 6, 6.5%, which is higher than the GDP growth uh, before the COVID-19, uh, COVID-19. I think the main reason for that is after the, COVID-19, the outbreak of the COVID-19, the global demand has uh, expanded uh, due to the uh, expansionary monetary and fiscal policies globally, especially in advanced economies. And uh, we expect the, the, the policy stimulus, stimulus in the developed economies will continue to, to be uh, strong in, in the next year. And that will help China's export to uh, to grow uh, robustly, and that will help China's uh, economic growth to to maintain a, a decent growth rate, uh, which is uh, which will be a little bit higher than the pre COVID uh, growth rate. Uh, thank you. Uh, that's that's my point, and uh, I'll be happy to take questions from you and uh, the audience.
1: Uh, Great. Well, that, that was a, that was a great kickoff. I mean, talk about the, the, I mean, the biggest surprise to me over the last couple of weeks has been the, the really surge in export growth. Um, what, and, and what I expect, actually, I, I still expect it is, you know, the US, um, we're now, you know, with some, a few bumps in the road, we're going to be through um, COVID, uh, because of our vaccination plan. I don't want to get into whole discussion of that, but but I expect U.S. consumers to spend on services. I think you're already seeing the travel sector in the United States surge incredibly. You know, you're seeing United buying new airplanes. You're seeing you know, flight attendants and pilots being rehired. You're seeing hotels raising prices rapidly because demand is so great what's your prediction and i make that point because what's your prediction going forward for i'm not even talking about the eu or ASEAN or the rest of the world but for u.s exports if a lot of the money that's being put in the economy is actually spent on services not when you were stuck at home and you were buying new computers and new televisions and new things which were manufactured in China. Is this surge gonna continue? Or are we gonna see a leveling out of potentially a decline? And what does that mean for the future of China's GDP growth?
2: Okay, I will, I will answer that question and uh, and uh, see whether uh, Dr. Lam Hong has uh, more to say about that. I think uh, my forecast for China's export to United States if you look at the, if you look at the year-on-year year growth, the year-on-year year growth will, will be lower, uh, mainly due to the higher base. But if you look at the seasonal adjusted absolute level, absolute value of China's export to the United States, I think that will continue to be strong in the coming months, uh, For many, uh, mainly for two reasons. First, I totally agree with you, Steve, that uh, after, the, after the reopening of the economy in the United States, People will spend more money on the on the service uh, on services, but uh, you know uh, because of the uh, expansion in fiscal policies in the United States and the, uh, the government has given a lot of money to the to the consumers. Uh, actually, the the income is not a tight constraint. If your income, if if your income is a tight constraint, so if you spend more money on service, you cannot spend more money. You have to spend less on on the, on, the, on consumer goods, but the uh, the income is not a tight tight uh, it's not a tight constraint uh, in the United States. So I think uh, the more expend more expenditure on the services will not have that much uh, negative impacts on the on the expenditure on the, uh, on consumer goods. That's one reason. A second reason is. Actually, if you look, the first country in the, in the world to, uh, to achieve the herd immunity is Israel. And Israel has reopened its economy in June this year. So Israel – so the economic development in Israel can give us clues about what the economic – what the US, U.S. and the European economy will be in the coming quarters. So if you like – if you like the economic data in Israel, after the reopen – sorry. Uh, in the second quarter of this year, uh, when the Israel has achieved this herd immunity status, uh, actually Israel uh, retail sales in Israel recovered in the second quarter. And the import of the consumer goods of, the, uh, of Israel, in Israel actually recovered significantly in, in, this, in, in, in the second quarter of this, of this year. So I think the, what we can get, what the message we can get from Israel is that after, re, after the reopening of the economy, the economy, the appetite, the, the appetite of the economy for uh, imported consumer goods will continue to increase. So I think uh, combined these two reasons, I, I expect the absolute value of China's export to United States will, will maintain at a very high level for some time. Yang-ho, did you want
0: to comment on that? Yeah, I, I, I agree with you, um I think when we see this very strong export number, not just from China, but also Japan uh, and Korea, uh, this is reflecting the very, support, very supportive policy uh, in the US, but also in Europe. And many of those uh, support came in the form of direct transfer to household sector uh, and that translates into fair, still fairly high demand for tradable goods. Uh, but I want to add one thing that uh, even last year, people started to debate whether uh, China's exports will start to fade once uh, everybody uh, start to recover from uh, COVID. Uh, one of the things people have noticed is uh, Chinese manufacturers have gained the market share um, because they were they recovered at first. Um, and if if this was a quarter or two phenomenon, um, it's reasonable to expect once everyone else's supply chain start to recover, the market share will be uh, given back to the previous uh, owner. Um, but as we have seen, this has lasted for almost a year. And if we look at a global vaccination uh, progress, Uh, it looks like most of the developing countries will not get uh, adequate vaccination probably until middle next year. So the whole supply chain uh, remains fairly uh, vulnerable and still pockets of problems came up. Um, So I think there's um, an open question, uh, how much of the uh, export market share gains uh, by the Chinese companies uh, are more permanent
1: yeah why did the there was a couple of months ago you know there was a a a COVID outbreak in Shenzhen and the port was closed for a time and there was a lot of expectation that that would dent uh, the export numbers but it didn't or it doesn't appear why didn't it
0: I think it's because the largest 10 ports in the world, six are in China. So if you just have one that <laughs> gets into trouble, it uh, shouldn't it affect. But
1: the supply chain, does it really allow you to move from, you know, to Shenzhen to, to you know, to Guangzhou? Or to but
0: Shenzhen? If you look at how uh, they mostly are in the southern China coastal area. It's not that far. And, and if we look back in uh, early 2020, I think China has demonstrated how effectively it can manage resource mobilization across the country, uh, given the very strong, uh, very robust infrastructure. It's not just the ports, it's the roads, it's the train. Um,
1: Shugao, was there, did you want to add something on that? Well, I agree with Liang Hong. You
2: know that um, China she, China has uh, shown its ability to contain the in- impacts of the COVID nineteen on the economy in the past uh, in the past year. And actually, if you look at the, the uh, freight shipment freight, it has uh, it has continued to increase significantly in the in the, in the last several months. That reflects. Uh, Bottleneck for China's export is the is the is the is the sea, uh, the ocean seaport uh, ocean 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 shipping, and if uh, you know that because the export demand is quite strong and um, China still have a uh, uh, big capability to deliver uh, to deliver supply, but the if if there were if the ship if the the bottleneck of the ocean shipping is not that tight. Actually, I believe I think China's export will be would be stronger than it than than it was uh, in the in the past several months.
1: Yeah, the fiscal deficit of China. I heard you say is about five percent of GDP. Xu Bao. No, I think the the shrink of the
2: shrink of the uh, the the shrink of the China's uh, uh, fiscal deficit in the first of five months of the year, uh, compared to the first five months of last year, is about uh, is roughly five percent. That is uh, that is the combined that is the uh, fiscal deficit and that is the fiscal def- that is combined the, the the fiscal deficit of this. Uh, what so how do I put it? The revenue and expenditure related to the land sales. If you combine the fiscal, uh, normally fiscal deficit and uh, uh, and the fiscal deficit of the of the related to land land revenue, uh, we have seen that the uh, fiscal deficit has strengthened significantly in in the, in the first five months of this year, and uh, that is to a large extent a result of the. Uh, fast growing of the fiscal revenue in the first half, first five months of this year.
0: Yeah. So, Steve, roughly, if we um, um, the macro picture, uh, you could also say Chinese fiscal side tightened by five percentage point of GDP. That's how much the swing is. Uh, I think Xu Gao's point is, if we look at the above line and below line revenue expenditure together, last year, the first five months, China run a deficit of 2.5 trillion RMB, but this year, they run a small surplus. The swing of that in annualized GDP terms is five percentage point. Um, so when, uh, in, in light of that, and, and if we look at the Q two uh, growth numbers, it was not bad because of the very strong exports. Otherwise, uh, any country that experienced such a big swing of physical tightening uh, should have seen much weaker data.
1: The U um, S. is running a deficit, a fiscal deficit of uh, the, the of three trillion dollars, not not RMB but of $3 trillion in, in 2021. What is, the contrast is, is stunning. What does that mean to an economist?
0: I think to economists, we always argue for appropriate policy. Uh, put lightly, um, a lot of economists are worried about uh, the physical monetary policy are too stimulative in the States. And there are uh, scholars, uh, advisors in China, uh, debating whether we are too hawkish, (laughs) too cautious. Um, So I think either side, if I look um, out in the next three to six months, um, probably need some policy fine tuning. And over the longer term, I think that kind of very different policy choices um, probably will at the end of day reflect into how the currency, how capital flows will do.
1: Shugao, anything you want to say on that one? Well,
0: I think
2: uh, when we talk about the fiscal policy, I think the fiscal policy uh, should be adjusted according to the economic environment and uh, uh, and also the fiscal sustainability should be taken into account. And I think uh, for, for China, when you see strong export demand, when you, see the, uh, when you see there is inflation pressures at the producer side, I think it, is, uh, it makes a lot of sense to, to take uh, a kind of prudent uh, policy stance uh, uh, in fiscal and monetary policy, uh, st- uh, policies. Um, but I, I also believe that uh, in the coming quarters, the fiscal policy stance in China will be uh, more expansion, uh, more expand more more expansionary uh, compared with uh, compared to the uh, first five months of this of this year. And if you look at the United States, I think uh, United States because the interest rate in the United States is quite low, which means the interest, the 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 burden of the of this uh, government debt, uh, uh, interest burden of the government debt is low. And I think the sustainability of the U.S. government debt uh, uh, should should be something taken into account when the policymakers in the United States uh, come up with the uh, fiscal policy in the coming years. But I think that that is not a a very big problem for for the time being and uh, and the expansion, the fiscal policy, expansion of fiscal policies in the United States has visibly helped the U.S. consumers to recover from the uh, impacts of the COVID-19. So I think that has done a lot of good job in the in the coming quarters, but uh, in in the last several quarters.
1: When will China have seventy percent of its population vaccinated?
0: Well, uh, I think they are already at a fifty. So uh, they're running at uh, about a hundred million people uh, every 10 days. Uh, So So, uh, if they can keep that speed, um, I think they would um, probably it would take a a month and half to two months. But I think uh, US experience, everyone showed the last, once you get to past 50, it gets more difficult to do.
1: First fifty is much easier. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's because my question then was going to be what you know in the early well in the you know for the first year plus of COVID the quarantine system uh, was effective, uh, but now the vaccination, especially the new technology uh, and the very high effectiveness of the Pfizer, uh, Moderna, AstraZeneca. Um, and J and J vaccines. The, the efficacy of this is really very effective and it's allowed um, you know the United States to begin to approach something it's not normal yet but in the next few months. the quarantine system in China has, has high economic costs. So will that system then ultimately when vaccination is sufficient be abandoned? Or will there continue to be what is effectively a zero tolerance for any COVID?
0: I will give a first shot on this question. You you can try as well. Um, I think all the countries are watching how this has evolved. Uh, if you look at the Delta variant and how uh, the outbreak, uh, how the COVID cases uh, started to rise so fast in Britain and even in um, uh, Israel, uh, some of the very uh, high vaccinated nations. Um, again, uh, we have been this vir- this virus has proven to be much more tricky than many people expected. Uh, we had a few false darn before. Um, so I think uh, given China has been very successful in containing it and given the very broad domestic consensus to support such a policy, uh, I would think they would uh, the government would be fairly cautious of opening up. Uh, at the moment, they are watching for some other nations, including the US, how uh, the vaccination can deal with the virus. Uh, I would hope if at the end of the day, uh, the vaccine, vaccines, uh, even if it cannot predict uh, prevent complete uh, from you know, people getting uh, the virus, but if it can significantly reduce the hospitalization and death rates to a normal cold level or flu level, uh, I think probably um, China uh, can, think about it uh, to open up as uh, other places, but it would not do uh, what some other country has done, uh, so-called uh, a little bit uh, too early kind of opening up and you got hit by uh, second wave, third wave in the fourth wave.
2: Well, I agree with Liang Hong that uh, I believe that Chinese government will take a very cautious stance in, in evaluating whether to Abandon the system because the system has proved its effectiveness and its usefulness in the in the past several quarters. And uh, we expert we economists are not experts on pandemic, so I think uh, so we cannot uh, make our uh, professional professional uh, uh, evaluation on that. But uh, from the economic perspective, I think we should compare the direct cost of this uh, system and the indirect revenue of the system yes if you shut down a city that will, that will inevitably lead to big negative impacts on the economic activity in that area but if you look at the experience in china in the past month uh, past uh, in the last year uh, because of the of this the because of the china has contr- con- control the, uh, has 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 do a lot of a very good job in containing the spread of the virus in, within the economy. China's economy recovered uh, has done, a, ha, China has done the actually the best job in the world in recovering, in, in terms of the economic recovery. So if you compare the direct cost and the indirect revenue, I think uh, the, the consensus within the, the within China is, it's quite strong that uh, this system is useful, and uh, at least we need that for for a moment.
1: Uh, you know, I, I think you're right. It's it's not a fair question for economists. I think you know the the economists can analyze the economic costs of each of the of the approaches. I think there is a uh, you know the the virtual inability of of. Of Americans and others to go to China because of the quarantine uh, policies. It's very difficult to analyze what the economic costs of that, but I can tell you the human costs are enormous. Um, I actually believe that one of the reasons that U.S.-China relations are where they are today is the lack uh, of human contact that the trips that people would take from China to the United States and the United States to China have basically ended now for for 18 months and that has there's a real human cost in not having those kinds of interactions and it's you know as it continues to drag on you know in 2020 I said in 2021 and I'll be I'll be I'll be certain to go now I'm sitting there going well I hope I see you in 2022, but it, it's, there, there is a serious uh, cost to that. That's not true. That is partly quantifiable. Partly it's an economist's work and partly it's, it's not, not quantifi- quantifiable. Uh, there's been a lot of talk in the United States about China's demographic challenge. How do you think about that? You know That we've seen basically a peak in China's population how should we think about that? Not in terms of China's growth in two thousand and twenty-one, but in two thousand and thirty, and kind of reaching the long-term plans of uh, for China.
0: Shall I go first, or should you go? You want to go first on this one?
1: You go first.
0: Okay. Um, I always felt um, the demographic. Uh, picture or, or question is more complex than first Mr. I um, uh, Many people, uh, many scholars uh, in the past have uh, emphasized the uh, demographic challenge for China. And essentially that uh, an, analytical framework, looking at everybody is the same uh, and you count growth or uh, economic development by uh, how the body, the number of body grows. Um, I think it has two, um, it probably has missed two other aspects when anyone uh, analyzes this question. Why is the structure of the demographics, particularly uh, the human capital uh, side of the equation, and secondly, uh, that framework economists use assumes full employment. Um, and in uh, when this one comes to uh, a China, this question comes to emerging uh, economy. Uh, I I think that assumption is uh, questionable, uh, given we still have. Um, Uh, quite a large share of labor force uh, in the agriculture sector and China still has a a very um, outdated retirement age arrangement in the world. But I I would like to highlight on the first one because most of economists when they think about growth uh, it's other than raw labor Uh, in the past couple of decades, people have highlighted uh, human capital uh, and how technology innovation actually really determines long-run growth. And in uh, that context, uh, many of the investors have been um, starting to get familiarized with the term uh, engineer dividends. Uh, This is uh, looking at the structure of the labor force Uh, for the younger generation um, who were born after 1995, uh, more than 40% of them will have a college degree and more than 60% of them will have a STEM major. Uh, So in fact, if you look at it this year, uh, college graduates, uh, it's 9 million of them. Uh, from China, and that's uh, roughly the sum of the rest of the world. Um, so, if economists uh, or or investors think uh, in the long run uh, the strength of the economy or competition is going to be set by technology and innovation, uh, I think maybe um, some attention should be paid on the structure of the labor force particularly how that structure is quickly changing. Um, so every new entrant to the labor market has much more uh, education compared with the one who is retiring. Xu Gang. Xu Gang?
2: Well I totally with Yang Hong that uh, uh, if you look evaluate the contribution of labor to GDP to economic growth, it's not enough just to look at the number. You should also look at the quality of the labor and uh, the enge- uh, engineering dividend, as uh, Liang Hong mentioned before, is quite important. And I want to make another point is that actually the, the change of the demographic is quite is very slow and uh, it is too slow that you cannot see um, visible differences if you look at the year, year, yearly data. So this is a long run trend. Actually, it is true that uh, uh, China's China has lost, uh, is, will gradually lose its uh, so-called demo, demographic dividend, but that is a phenomena. You can only see its impact in 10, 20 years. If you look at, if we evaluate the, the, the growth in this year and next year, the, some cyclical factors will play a much more important roles uh, than the demographic uh, factors. So, in, so in, in, in evaluating the uh, growth in this and next year, I think uh, global uh, external, external demand and domestic uh, policies or policies are much more important than the demographic changes.
1: Mm-hmm. As the urban rural migration run its course, what's left in terms of rural population that's gonna move back to the city and cre- move to the city and, and become much more uh, productive Members of the economy.
0: Um, so the official Actually, urbanization. You th- sorry, uh, uh, sorry, Xu after, after after <laughs> you Um, yeah, the official urbanization ratio is at about sixty-two-three percent, um, and compared with um, country of similar income level. Um, I think the ratio still has about ten to 20 percentage point to go. But in China's case, there are more complication to that. As uh, Steve, you know, uh, this is urbanization, just counting, uh, also counting a lot of migrant labors. Uh, but if you look at it from a Huco's perspective, people with urban Hupo, that, uh, that ratio is 46%. That we haven't crossed the 50 line mark. Uh, and another number I'm watching is the labor force still in agriculture, even though this labor force is tend to be older, but they are still um, below you know, the age of 60. Um, that number, China is still running at 22% ish. but agriculture is only uh, less than 8% of GDP. Uh, so you can see we still have quite a lot of surplus labor uh, that uh, the urban or industrial activities uh, so far cannot fully absorb. You Let me it. ask
1: my. Do uh, so you have anything you want to well, say? At I, all? I, I agree with Liang
2: Hong, and I have nothing to add.
1: Okay, my favorite question is always to to ask. Looking ahead five years, give me a couple of um, potential upside surprises and downside surprises. So things that are not you know part of the consensus estimate but where we might see the Chinese economy grow faster or we might see it slow down more?
0: (laughs) Well, um, I think for the next five years, uh, um, investors or uh, a lot of the uh, should be uh, paying attention to how uh, the structure of the economy uh, is changing very fast. Uh, and particularly uh, how successful or not successful, uh, China is moving up the value chain uh, and position itself for innovation uh, and technology uh, uh, progress. Um, And in my mind, uh, the first decades of this century, uh, a lot of the story how China affects the rest of the world is through is a uh, cheap labor force gets integrated with the rest of the world. Uh, we started to see uh, China's uh, much well-educated labor force gets um, hopefully integrated world, um, but you know, unfortunately, maybe just uh, integrated was part of the world. Uh, how that plays out in... Uh, um, a. F- quite a number of industries. This is uh, very fascinating. Um, And secondly, I think the next five years, um, carbon neutrality, how China is going to increasingly um, having a more uh, concrete plan uh, and how the policy uh, gets lined up on that. Uh, So today uh, in China, uh, on Friday, uh, China will officially launch its national carbon trading system. Um, I think that will be an area, uh, I think China can make progress, contribution, but also work with the rest of the world. Uh, for downside, uh, I think there are a couple of issues Chinese, uh, policy makers and, and economists agree, uh, China should take efforts to address, uh, but so far progress has been very, made very slowly. Um, I think one is uh, the financial system remains so much uh, uh, dominated by banks, capital accounts remain to be, uh, ha- capital account opening progress has been made, but slow. Uh, whether those area continue to be uh, drags for uh, reforms um, and also drags for better resource uh, allocation. I will uh, stop that. Xigong.
2: Okay, uh, for the next five years, I think the, the one upside uh, factors we should take into account is the uh, innovation uh, in China. It, Actually, the number of the international patent granted in China is, is now is uh, higher than it, than it is in the United States, and the number has has continued to climb to climb very very fast. And uh, if you look at the, the look, for example, look at the internet industry, the innovation in internet internet industry in China is very active. In the past, in the last, in the past, uh, China. The, 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 the development of the internet in, in industry is more like uh, copy, the, uh, copy something from, uh, uh, from a board to China. And, but now the innovation, is, uh, this internet, uh, internet uh, sector, it has turned into the copy China's model to other countries. So China now, uh, at least in the internet industry has, has become the source of the innovation uh, globally. And uh, as uh, you know that the China graduate, there's about 10 million uh, college graduated students every year in China. I think this high educated people will push China's ability of the innovation further in the coming, five, in, in the coming years. And another uh, upside, I think it is the, this carbon neutral and the carbon, uh, carbon peak uh, initiative and that means a huge uh, huge energy demand for uh, for clean uh, a huge demand for clean clean energy in the coming decades and i, I think that will translate into a huge in the investment in solar power in wind power and that will uh, generate a lot of opportunities and for the downside i think uh, that is, there's the old issue of the, of the rebalancing of the Chinese economy from this investment-driven to to consumer-driven uh, growth model. And uh, although we have uh, started that the rebalancing for for quite some time, but the, the the progress of the rebalancing agenda in China is still uh, limited. I think uh, in the in the in the next five five years. China will continue to push on the, the reform agenda to rebalance China's economy and uh, uh, to, 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 to boost uh, uh, consumer, consumer uh, consumption in China to achieve a more stable and reba- uh, balanced, stable, and the sustainable growth in China. But the, uh, with how much we can
1: do on that front uh, remains to be seen. I'm surprised, either if you mentioned. Uh- a rupture in U.S.-China economic relations would be a real down uh, downside for the for China's economy. That if 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 uh, if that should happen, it's not altogether inconceivable. That would be a a, a serious problem uh, for both economies, in my view, not only for the U.S. economy. We got some great audience questions, so let me let me. Kind of go to some of them and then continue to ask my own questions. One is from Ken Jarrett, former consul general in Shanghai and uh, head of Shanghai American Chamber of Commerce. The Chinese government often talks about stimulating domestic demand but the results aren't there. What more should the government do? Can government policies have an impact?
0: That's a very big Um, long-term question, Um, I will try to uh, um, answer it in, um, I think if you look at the, uh, if China, I think uh, um, Deputy Prime Minister Liu He has written about this 10 years ago, It's very clear. uh, If you look at it from an income distribution perspective, uh, if China's domestic demand as a share of GDP needs to rise up and its uh, investment as a percent of GDP should not go up any further. Uh, It implies consumption as a percent of GDP needs to go up. Um, By definition over the longer term for that to go up and China uh, does not want to run into asset bubbles or leverage that has to imply uh, household income as a percent of GDP needs to go up. Uh, And that share comes from somewhere um, and we have long, uh, I think Chinese, the top leaders know this. The share can come only from two parts. Um, the taxing the rich doesn't really uh, help a lot in China, uh, given that's a still very small part of uh, the economy. Um, it's really transferring uh, from uh, excess um, assets or tax revenue or levies Uh, from the public sector. Uh, And China has been doing that in the past 10 years. So as a result, we have seen that share going up. Um, But um, further reforms are needed to uh, adjust some of the excessive uh, levies. It's not tax, just only tax, it's uh, like the social security contribution. Uh, For example, China's uh, pension contribution by corporates is still 16%. Uh, That's the uh, six percentage point higher than the US. And that's related to the pension reform, to the unfinished SOE reform, a lot of those things. Uh, So at the end of the day, uh, if um, Uh, China really wants, uh, for example, uh, China's consumption shares of GDP to go up to uh, close to 60%, I would expect to see uh, some uh, income uh, redistribution uh, within the domestic economy uh, and much more of that should be achieved from the public sector uh, to the private sector, rather than within the private sector. Uh, there are some rotation needs to be done, but China's elephant in the room is from the public sector to the private sector. Xu Gao.
2: Uh, well, I agree. I agree with Liang Hong that uh, uh, in order to boost the domestic demand, especially boost the domestic consumption demand, China should do a lot in terms of the uh, structural reform. Uh, China should increase the household income as a share of GDP. Uh, and uh, in order to do that, uh, you should uh, adjust the income distribution within China. Uh, and uh, China, China government has, st- has started to do, uh, has started to make progress on that front. For example, in the, in the last several years, we have cut uh, uh, cut tax in order to uh, to to to, in- to push up uh, in- uh, household income in, in China. But uh, this structural reform takes time uh, and. Uh, uh, the, this drug reform has started to show its effect, but uh, uh, it takes time to have its full, uh, to, 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 to show its full effect. And in the meantime, we actually, China Chinese government has used this policy stimulus to boost uh, investment demand, for example, infrastructure investment and uh, property investment. But uh, in doing that, uh, the policymakers should take, uh, should, should, um, maintain a balance on one side, on one hand is the use infrastructure and property investment to maintain a stable growth. And on the other side, on the other hand is, is to, to, to contain the risk related to that. For example, we have a local government debt problem. We have property, uh, property bubble problem, and uh, there is a, there is a delicate balance should be, should be strike. Uh, So I think. Uh, when you use the policy stimulus to boost domestic investment uh, demand, uh, uh, the policymakers in China are, are constrained by these uh, concerns. But uh, I think all in all, they have done a good job, uh, a good job in terms of uh, uh, maintaining a stable growth uh, before and after the COVID 19 uh, crisis.
1: They certainly could have, if they'd taken, Liang Hong pointed out that the Chinese government, U.S. government took very different approaches to COVID relief. If the Chinese government had had direct payments or, let's say, created vouchers for Chinese consumers to buy stuff, that would have had a very different effect than dealt with what Ken Jarrett was asking.
0: Um, I, I think that's more controversial. I actually just had some discussion with a, a senior regulator on this before. Uh, I think the, um, for China, for, firstly, household has very high savings rate, so the urgent demand like to get direct payment to household to uh, save the cash flow, that kind of urgent need that didn't exist in China. And secondly, given how large, how um, People are spreading around the country, it will be hard to uh, do a digital, uh, do a direct payment uh, to household. Maybe in the future, if we have a digital currency, it will be easier to
1: do. Talk about the digital currency. Uh,
0: uh, yeah, I invited this.
1: Kind <laughs> of where it is, where it's going to go, and what it means for, for, um, for China in the world.
0: Shigao, you take this one. You're closer to them.
2: Well, I, actually, I'm not an expert on the digital currency, but uh, I think that the digital currency is, uh, is issued by the PBOC, Central Bank of China, will, uh, will, will also will facilitate the uh, transaction in, in China. Actually, I want to uh, add one point to the, to the last question. Actually, if, you, if China uh, just like the United States to give a lot of money directly to China's consumers and uh, if that, that policy boosted the, uh, China's consumer demand for goods, I think the inflation pressures in China and the United States will be much higher than it, than it is now. So I think uh, when, when you have expansionary uh, fiscal and monetary policy outside China, I think it just makes makes sense for Chinese government to take a a more prudent uh, policy stance in terms of the uh, boosting domestic demand.
1: Wouldn't it be interesting if you had, if every Chinese had a digital wallet and the central government made a decision that they needed a stimulus, you know, that that it was kind of the, the decision which the U.S. government made, and it took a very long time to actually implement it and get the money to American consumers. If China had made a similar decision, obviously they didn't, and decided they wanted to get money in the pockets of Chinese consumers, they the, the PBOC could instantaneously distribute it to, to Chinese consumers around the country. It's, it would be a remarkable tool for that purpose. Do you guys agree with that? Am I wrong, or is that basically how- it works. I agree with you, Steve. I agree <laughs> yeah, it with you. It will be there.
0: a very powerful This, this digital currency, I think
2: it is very important to find a financial in- uh, infrastructure and that will uh, help to increase the efficacy of the China's financial and the fiscal policies in the, in the coming years. Have either of you
1: used the digital UN?
0: I got the invitation but I have been so far too lazy to set it up. Shuga, did you get the invitation to set up? No. Oh, I got the invitation announced. from my bank. I should take some time to do it.
1: <laughs> um, you get
0: 200 cool. RMB red pocket.
1: Yes, you get you get the in Shenzhen, I think it was more it was 2000, okay. it was it was some large in the test that they did. Um, Let me go to some more. A lot of the questions relate to uh, the credit issues. Jeff Moon asks, Chinese corporations have defaulted on local bonds this year at the fastest pace on record. How will the latest economic data affect China's policy response to this program? Similarly, someone else asks, bond defaults are high. And Tsinghua Yumi Group has just announced that it is insolvent and needs restructuring. How serious? is the potential for credit disruptions in China. Is this one of the reasons credit policy was relaxed recently?
0: Um, I will be very brief on um, both um, um, Shiga and I, when we summarized the Q2 performance, one of the message we uh, try to emphasize is uh, quite a lot of the slowdown of the economic growth was a deliberate policy choice. Uh, and the policymakers at the end of last year, when they set up policy agenda for this year, they explicitly said they would take up the opportunity uh, when the external demand exports were very strong they would take up this opportunity to try to address some of the long-term challenges. This is including local government borrowing and some of the um, culprits' access borrowing issue. Um, so it's not a surprise they allowed some targeted defaults uh, in by do- both local government um, funding vehicles, um, related bonds, and uh, um, a few large corporate state Um, And we think that's probably also contributed to some of the weak uh, spots when we see in the data. Um, But again, um, they are very careful and they don't want this to translate into either a systematic risk or um, a broad, too quick, Uh, slowdown of the economy. That's where we're starting to see policy fine-tuning. But I think if we look at the past few years, uh, this economic team seems to be fairly determined to get some of this uh, bond borrowing access uh, out of the way. So we may be uh, still in the future see a couple of those stress points, but uh, so far uh, it seems to be a much more, uh, it, it seems to be a much Manage the process rather than, um, you know, minsky key moments as uh, some have feared. Uh,
2: I agree with Liang and uh, bounty. default, I think is necessary for a healthy bond market, and uh, that will help uh, investors and uh, uh, firms to strengthen uh, strengthen uh, the discipline. And uh, the as Liang said that uh, the. Chinese government has taken the opportunity of this uh, of this window opportunity when you have a strong external demand, so you can take a more poor prudent uh, policy stance with uh, domestically. So they take that window opportunity to solve this uh, structure problem problem in the in the bond market. That's we. That's why we see this uh, default uh, in the bond market. But I believe that. Uh, uh, china was uh, policy makes will strike to the bottom line that is there is no systematic financial uh, financial risks so i believe that this this uh, bond default will not jeopardize the uh, bond market and uh, on the contrary i think this uh, this default will help uh, to strengthen the market discipline and uh, uh, promote the market efficiency bond market efficiency uh, in the coming in the coming years
1: i have another dozen questions i'd like to ask um <laughs> i don't know let, let me close I'll, I'll close with an audience question i wanted to actually add why there's such an enormous spread between between chinese bonds and 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 u.s bonds you know it's it's amazing the additional uh return that you get from investing in chinese bonds today versus U.S. bonds, despite the three trillion dollar, you know, fiscal deficit and a whole variety of other things, but I'll actually leave that for another day and ask you, Joe's questions, which is, which is about um, will the Chinese government and we could do a full program on this address income inequality and is it viewed as as serious an issue as it is in the United States? And I know that requires a two-hour answer, but give it in one minute.
0: Yes, and uh, but the trick in China is where uh, you do that adjustment. Um, and I would think if China adjusts that income distribution from the public side to the private side, uh, they would uh, achieve more bucks to the efforts rather than in the US, I think it's squarely a issue from the rich to the poor.
1: You agree? Do you think- well, I think
2: that- uh, Well. In terms of the income inequality, I think we mainly talk about the income inequality within the population, and I think that China has done a great job in terms of the poverty reduction, and the poverty poverty reduction itself is something very positive to to increase the income in income equality within the population, and I think in the in the coming years, China's uh, Chinese policymaker will continue to push forward in that front in terms of the uh, increase
1: the income inequality uh, among the people. Do you want to give a quick answer on my question? On why the spreads are so wide?
0: Well, well they have very limited uh, supply. <laughs>
2: <laughs> well, my my answer to that is quite simple. You know. Uh, after all, the interest rate is the price of the saving. So it is determined by the supply and demand of saving. And China is, uh, is a country with, with excessive saving. That saving rate in China is more than 40%. And the national saving rate in the United States is much lower than, than in China. So then if you be, have more supply it, of saving
1: in China, so you have lower interest rate. Xu Gao, an excess savings, interest rate should be low.
0: Yeah, right. China is running at a, de- a government deficit at seven percent. U.S. is running ten percent above.
1: So why are you actually at- so much lower?
2: You know because means- because China. So it's, a de- 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 it's determined by the supply and demand, and in, in China the the demand for saving is also very very strong. You know China has a uh, uh, has a uh, Economy uh, growing much faster than United States which means that the China's uh, demand for savings can can give much higher return on savings I think that is the main problem uh, main,
1: main problem that I have gone significantly over so I could educate s- get, squeeze a little more out of the two of you so I could make better decisions about portfolio allocations but thank you both so much for getting up early this morning from for educating us so well on what's going on in the Chinese economy, for taking us beneath and into the data so we can have a deeper understanding. But thank the audience for joining us and thank you both for for what you do for the National Committee. It's deeply appreciated. Have a great day there in China.
0: Thank you. Bye-bye. See you next time.
1: bye -bye. next time. See you in a few weeks.
0: For more interviews, videos, and links to events like this one, visit us at www.ncuscr.org.